Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. There, pardon me, they have been thrust down and cannot rise. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning the God who is our Father, and yet the God who is in heaven. And we do not want to come with any hint of presumption, but God, neither do we want to stand back at a distance when you've called us to come with holy boldness to the throne because of the work of Jesus. Father, there's much that we don't understand about you or about your work of grace, but God... Love bids us come, and we are grateful for this love, a love that melts our hearts, a love that calms our fears, a love that stirs love in us. And God, we pray that you would stir our little love. May Christ's love warm us up, warm our love, our faith, warm our zeal. God, we pray that Uh, For love of Him, seeing Him, um, that we could not remain cool, could not remain content to be lukewarm, could not um, stand the thought of grieving such love. Father, we praise You for the, um, the steadfastness of Your love the constancy of it, the unchangeableness of it. God, we are grateful that you have not only determined to love us, but you've done everything necessary to make that love good and holy and and, um, to, to bring us to yourself, not to just be objects of pity, but God, sons and daughters of the King. Father, we pray that your Spirit would take the things of Christ and show them to our souls. 
God teach us more, more about Jesus. Lead us to the cross and show us, God, His work there. Show us His wounds. Let us hear Him say again, Father, that it is finished. God, show us the empty tomb. And God, give us eyes of faith to see our man in heaven interceding for us even now. God, we ask that you would write these things on our hearts and that we would not soon forget them. We ask, God, that you would strengthen us and establish us in the faith. God, we pray that um, we would be quick to look to Christ and quick to run to Him, that we would keep a well-beaten path to the mercy seat. God, continue the work that you've begun in us. We pray that you would work in us your good pleasure and make us to be a people who love you and love your law and obey it. Obey it without complaint, without um, any um, hesitancy. God, we pray that you'd help us to see it as good and holy and what is good for us. Father, when we sin, we pray that you would give us grace to run quickly back and trust that there still is such sufficiency in Christ's atonement to cover each and every sin. God, make us to be a people who mourn over sin, who are not um, happy with the least sin. God, we ask that you make us holy and happy. Holy and happy in Jesus. While we're gathered together here, surely. But God, also, when we leave here and we are at home, or at work, or school, or with a friend. God, when we're alone with our thoughts, may we be holy and happy then. God, we pray that you would give us opportunity to speak to others of your salvation. God, help us to be aware of those around us, and not just as a, a mob of people, but God, as souls who are Many of them lost and undone. God, we want to bring them as one beggar who's found food. We want to come to them and invite them to come and eat. God, give us grace not only to be aware of them, but to to have boldness and words to say when it's time to speak. God, give us lives to match our words. We pray, God, as we've gathered here this morning, as we look into your word, that you would speak to us. Help us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 36 describes the preciousness of the loving kindness of God, and it does it in a wonderful way. As we look at it this morning, I want to begin with the the superscription, which is not something that we would normally do. But I just want to point out a few things here. You notice it is written for the choir director, and not every superscription contains that, which kind of leads me to wonder if there are some psalms that are kind of written originally as like just a psalm, and then God 
moves them to include it in the book of Psalms. But then there are some Psalms that are written for the people. It's meant from the beginning to be for the edification of many others. This one is written for the choir director. It is a Psalm of David, as are so many. But in this one, he describes himself as the servant of the Lord. And there are only two Psalms in which he does that. This one and in Psalm 18. Both of the Psalms are Psalms that have a contrast between the wickedness of humanity and the loving kindness of God. This is one of those. You'll also notice that the word Lord in the superscription, many of you know this, but just in case you don't, it is in all caps. And you'll see that sometimes in the Bible. In other places, it's not in all caps. And the Bible does that to distinguish one word from some other words. Oftentimes when you see the word Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, it is the word Adonai, which is, is Lord. It's that. But when you see it in all caps, it is distinguishing that word as God's name, His covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so David is saying here that he is the servant of the covenant-keeping God. And even in the superscription, he's hinting at what he is about to Say to us, he speaks as one who is familiar with this God, who is himself in covenant with this God. So he writes about the preciousness of God's loving kindness, his covenant, faithful, merciful love. I was uh, thinking earlier about another hymn, hymn 760, that begins, O love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. And in a sense, David invites us to come this morning and to view this love and to rest in it with him. As we look at it, the psalm kind of divides into three parts. In the first four verses, there is a description, an inspired description of sinful humanity. In verses 5 through 9, there is then a confession of how precious God's loving kindness is. And then in verses 10 through 12, there is a petition for intervention by this God of loving kindness. So we'll walk through that and see it together. The first being this inspired description of sinful man. Let's read verses 1 through 4 once again. Transgression speaks To the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. So here's a picture of sinful man. And it is an inspired description. As David writes this, this isn't just David you know, thinking in generalities or, or curious about how you know, people work. But God is leading him. And so it is an inspired description. As he writes this in verse 1, he speaks about words that come to the ungodly with authority. 
or at least they're heard with authority. The word that the New American Standard translates as speaks is not the, the normal word that we would translate speak. It is the word that's in other places translated oracle. And some translations have that. When we see that word in Scripture, it is often associated with God speaking to someone. So for instance, for instance in Isaiah 13.1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw. And then there are a series of oracles in Isaiah. Or Nahum 1.1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Or Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So here are these divine revelations that come authoritatively that these prophets see and they're to deliver this to a people. It's not always God speaking though. So, for instance, in Proverbs 31.1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. This is something his mama told him. But it was still, in a sense, an authoritative communication. Mama's sitting son down and saying, look, here's, here's some truth for you. And it was to him, I imagine, revelatory. When it comes from God, though, it comes as divine revelation. Here in Psalm 36, it's not God who is speaking to the ungodly, though, or being listened to. It is sin. Transgression speaks with this authority to the ungodly within his heart. Now, the authority is all imagined. It's authoritative because he listens to it and he buys it. The ungodly hears transgression speaking and it's like, yes. And so authority is given to it and it is revealing. It reveals the heart. Sometimes we... Tune out the voices around us. I don't know if there's a wife who has ever said her husband does not have selective hearing, right? Uh, every male is accused of this. Uh, and sometimes it's just that, you know, you're so focused on a particular task, you don't hear everything else going on around you. Um, and then there are other voices that we tend to tune out. Um, you know, during um, election season, you start tuning out commercials. You know, just you just stop listening because it's overpowering. It's, you know, you've heard it again and again and again. Um, and then, unfortunately, there are people who t- tend to tune out God. And they don't listen to His voice. But this voice is not only speaking, it is a voice that's being heard against the voice of of sin speaking within the heart of the ungodly. He receives it as authoritative. Not as the voice of God, but as the voice of rebellion. These words are heard or received or or even bowed to. Yes, I agree with them. When the Bible says that this speech occurs within his heart, it's not only telling us where these words or ideas are being received, but really also something of the source of these words. It's not... Just an external issue, although there are plenty of voices outside of us who try to to direct us and point us, and many of them in bad ways. There's also an internal problem, isn't there? Our problem is a heart problem. And the reason we would listen to any external voice that says these kind of things is because it appeals to what's already there. And because it is that kind of a problem, a, a heart problem... It's not something that any kind of education can fix. 
Not the best of educations, not the, the, the wisest or most godliest of educations. If you could, you know, force a child to memorize the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, and they had it word perfect, and they could explain it to you, it still wouldn't fix the problem of the heart. It's not a knowledge problem. It's not an inequality problem or an injustice problem, as real as those kinds of problems are in the world. There's a deeper problem. It's the problem of the heart. A problem that society will not evolve past. A problem that you can't outgrow. A problem that technology cannot fix. Our hearts are foul. They're sinful. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 said, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And most people would say, well, I can, at least mine. We think we have us figured out. And Jeremiah assures us we don't. It's deceitful above all else. Even when you think you've got it figured out, you don't. You know, there are are certain characteristics that mark various generations. There are generalizations, of course, but still... You know, this generation is kind of characterized by these kinds of thoughts. I read, I think it was yesterday, an article um, about Prince Harry in the wake of the um, coronation yesterday. And the book that he's recently written, Spare. You know, uh, I have not read the book. But the article was talking about how he has blamed you know, the institution of the monarchy on his many failings. So he's not allowed to be who he wanted to be, etc. And he's made all these mistakes because of this oppressive institution. And so he wants to destroy the institution. And it contrasted that and, and talked about how that is kind of emblematic of a generation. Um, it contrasted that with Queen Elizabeth as she became queen and some of the speeches she gave and her what she saw as her duty to suppress personality to some degree and personal preference for public service and to take on this assigned role where Harry's not willing to take on the assigned role of being the spare. So, um, you know, characterizations of, of generations. As David writes this, though, he's not talking about something that, that describes a specific generation to the exclusion of other generations. There may be generations that appear more godless than other generations, but that doesn't deal with the heart problem of every generation and of every person who's ever walked this earth except for the Lord Jesus. We are all a people who are guilty and sinful. In fact, jumping ahead just a second, at the second half of that verse where he says, there is no fear of God before His eyes. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul borrows that phrase from that verse in Romans chapter 3. He quotes it in verse 18 as he concludes his list of quotes from the Old Testament to describe the sinfulness of humanity. If you look back at verse 9 of Romans 3, he asks the question, What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews inherently better than Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he again sums it up in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a problem that is a problem of every generation, of every person. So he's not just describing the very bad people out there in the world that do very bad things that come to mind when you hear that kind of phrase. But he's also talking about you and me. It's the condition of every man and woman and every boy and girl outside of Jesus. He goes on in his description in the second half of that verse that I've just mentioned it, being no fear of God before their eyes. And here we see that the voice that the ungodly tends to listen to is a deluding voice. It, it lies to you. It tells you what you want to hear and it silences out the voices that would warn you and it leads you then to dangerous conclusions. One dangerous conclusion is that there is no reason to fear God. When the Bible speaks of fearing God, there are a couple of different ideas that are communicated by our English word fear. One is the idea of a reverential fear, a familial familial fear. So you might think of child to parent who looks at the parent with respect and love and desire to obey. And as children of God, we ought to have that kind of reverential fear for our Heavenly Father. But there's also the fear of dread, terrified dread. And this word is actually a word that means that very idea, dread. It is to be terrified. It is used in Psalm 14, 5, where it says, There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. And in Psalm 53, 5, There they were in great fear, pardon me, There they were in great fear, where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. This great fear, there was a, a terror that they felt. In Psalm 91, verse 5. I'll read verse 4 and 5. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. So because God's wings cover you, because He's a shield and bulwark, you will not be afraid or terrified by this this terror. There's no reason for this dread because God is a shield. But then there are some things 
which ought to cause terror in the hearts of people. There are some things that should fill your heart with dread. If you are still in your sin and it has not been atoned for, well, that should cause you dread. Knowing that there is a God who sees everything you do, who hears everything you say, who even sees your heart, the thoughts and the intents of the heart that never come out. He sees that and He knows that. Well, that should fill your heart with dread. If it's not covered by Christ. But sin speaks up. And it whispers lies. And the wicked heart listens to those lies as though they speak with authority. And the result is, there's no fear of God before His eyes. No dread of God. No terror at the thought of judgment. No trembling at His commands. No fear of an eternity in hell. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear Him. Do fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a healthy fear. There is a rational fear. And the fear of God and His judgment is a rational fear. But sin blinds us. It distracts us from reality and it makes us believe things that are not true. It leads us to believe things that are not true. And as fear is removed, so is restraint. Verse 2. One author uh, used the title here of imagined immunity and it, it fits so well. Here's a person who imagines they're immune from all this. And they're not. It is imagined. Verse 2 says, It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. How can a person afford to ignore God? Well, It's because they've convinced themselves that it, it doesn't matter. Either they will not be discovered or God doesn't care. It's, it doesn't matter. The sinfulness of the heart deceives and it flatters with with soothing words that smooth the way to believe these lies. So the first one, your sin won't be discovered. It's the idea that nobody will notice, and especially not anyone with the power to do anything about it. That's really a stupid kind of optimism that ignores reality. I mean, are you that clever that you'll always get away with everything and nobody will ever notice all the wrong choices you make, all the foolish, sinful things that you do? Or is everyone else, including God, just that oblivious that they're blind to you and your foolishness and the, you know, the sinful choices? Perhaps like the people that Peter writes about in Second Peter, we look at, at our little slice of life, our few days, and we decide nothing ever changes. I know there's all this talk about judgment, but God never does anything. Everything's always been the same, continued since the beginning to the end. Nothing ever changes. And Peter says they're, you know, they're, they're not paying attention to facts. They're not paying attention that, that God destroyed the world with a flood. And it's not that God is oblivious or that He doesn't care. It's that He's patient and He's waiting, giving you time to repent. Numbers 32, 
23 says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature, no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. What do you hide from someone who sees everything? Well, nothing. You don't hide anything. He sees it. He knows it. And that by itself ought to you know, slow you down. That ought to make you pause. Or there's another lie that some people perhaps have bought into, and that is that sin is not hated. You flatter yourself that your sin is not hated. It's not that big a deal. Even if your sin's noticed, nothing will be done about it. This is the kind of lie that judges by false standards. You know, I, I've done wrong things, sure, but I'm not that bad. There's always somebody worse, right? There's always somebody who's done something I haven't done. And if I look at them, I can make myself look pretty good. And I, I compare myself and I decide, you know, all in all, I'm not a bad person. Or it's the kind of lie that decides that my good will somehow outweigh my bad. And, you know, at the end, everything's on the scales and, and my, my good's going to atone for my bad. And neither idea is sound. Neither idea is biblical. It's the glory of God that you've fallen short of. And we've all fallen short of it. This is also the kind of lie that mischaracterizes God. It assumes that He's like you. Overlooking some sins. Shrugging your shoulder at sin. Or maybe just kind of worn down by the world and sin. And so you've let things go that you wouldn't have let go at one time. And maybe God's kind of worn down and tired. It's the kind of idea that would say that at the end... God's going to let us go. So everything up till now is kind of a scare tactic, but the reality is there's no punishment. You know, God's all bark and no bite, and He just loves everybody, and at the end, we all get a free pass. But again, not a sound idea. It is wishful thinking. These are lies that our deceitful hearts whisper to us, that an enemy whispers to us. But there's no objective standard that, that tells us that God will not see what's before Him, laid bare before Him, or that He doesn't care about it when He tells us that He's angry with the wicked every day. How can you come to that kind of conclusion? Verses 3 and 4 describe kind of a descent into sin, unrestrained sin. When the fear of God is lost, the lie is believed, and there's nothing to restrain and so there's a, a sinfulness described here in speech and activity. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, lies, curses, profanity, blasphemy, slander, gossip, on and on. If there's no judgment, if there's no accountability for what you say, then you can say whatever you want. There's no one who can... You know, stop you. There's no one who can call you to the carpet and say, what about that? 
But it's not just his words, as terrible as they would be. There's also his actions. Verse 3 continues, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Wisdom and righteousness are seen traveling together here. And when wisdom disappears, then so does righteousness. Here's a person bent upon foolishness. And in his foolishness, he's also wicked. Verse 4, he goes to bed. Instead of resting there, he plots more wickedness. If the rules need to be bent to achieve his end, his goal, then so be it. Verse 4 concludes by saying he does not despise evil. There are those crimes that are so heinous that there's a public outcry. And then there are crimes that we've kind of adjusted ourselves to and you know, collectively everyone shrugs. And I suppose every individual has a, a little bit different list because when we think about despising evil or not despising evil, I think we're more prone to not despise our own evil um, as we justify ourselves. But we should despise evil, and especially our own. But when we believe lies, when we lose the fear of God, we, we don't despise evil, we celebrate it. We don't hate wrong things simply because they're wrong. And we should. Not just because of the consequences it has on me or the people I care about, but because it's wrong, because it's against God. Well, these verses paint a terrible picture of fallen humanity. In just a few verses, David has summed ungodliness up in this terrible fashion. And you might... Almost ask, why start a psalm like this? Could you not at least give us a kind of a cheerful introduction before you dive into this bad stuff? But he jumps right in. Here's how terrible humanity is. One reason he might do it like this is because it's the reality of who we are apart from God. Again, it's not just a special class of citizen. It's, it's all of us without Christ. This is who we are. And then as a believer, this is what a world without God is like. Not that they're directly enemies. We don't war against flesh and blood. But still, there are people, and you do things, and you think sometimes, why do they do that? Well, because there's a deceitfulness about sin. And there's this path that you walk down, and restraint goes away. But also, David begins this psalm with this dark picture because this dark picture provides a background for a sharp contrast as he turns the corner into verse 5. And there's not only a sharp contrast, there's a relief that the next paragraph provides. In verses 5 through 9, David makes a confession. And it's not a confession of sin, but of truth. He gives us a comparison. It's not a comparison of the ungodly to the godly, but of the ungodly to the hope of the godly, the one that the godly looks to. He confesses the character of God and he points us to the one in whom we hope. Let's read those verses again. Verse 5 
Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Well, just on the face of it, just reading the words, I hope that you hear the shift between verse 4 and verse 5. Between these two descriptions. As David begins to point us in this direction, he is pointing us to God's love. His covenant love. And he begins by showing it to us in a way that describes it, I think, in a a way that expresses that it's refreshing. There's a refreshing nature about God's covenant love. Especially... Seen in light of what we've just seen. Here's, here's man. Here's humanity. Oh, but God. Verse 5 begins with your loving kindness. Loving kindness is the New American Standard's attempt to translate a single Hebrew word. The ESV translates it steadfast love. The King James, New King James translates it mercy. All of these ideas are included as well as loyalty and favor. This covenant love, I'm just just going to call it loving kindness probably going forward. This loving kindness is also more than just good feelings or good intentions. It's it's an active love that reaches out and uh, as redeemed and now seeks out people. David says here that God's loving kindness extends to the heavens. He's, he's describing the greatness of this love. How, how large it is. The dimensions of it. it it's, you know, it's beyond reach. It's, it's immense. Sometimes you'll hear people you know, talking about how much they love the other person. I love you. I love you more. And back and forth. And with kids you do this. You know. And there's even a, a children's book, you know, I love you to the moon. Parent comes back, I love you to the moon and back. Well, that's a long way. But God's love is even more than that. More than the moon and back. It reaches to the heavens. It extends that far. How far is that? It's immense. God's love is great. David also speaks here of faithfulness. Faithfulness to his covenant. Your faithfulness, he says, reaches to the skies. God is faithful. Faithful to his covenant love. Faithful to his promises. And we know something about his faithfulness. Because he has spoken. It would be hard to gauge his faithfulness if he had not spoken. But he has said things. And every word he has said is true. Every promise he has made, he's either kept it or he will keep it. 
Never has one lie been uttered from his lips or one contradiction or one thing that he has to retract. I, I didn't mean to say that. Or, or, you know, I learned something and now I need to change what I said. None of that. Everything he said is true. Everything he said is faithful. You can trust and depend upon every word. He keeps promises like these which are linked with his covenant love. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You think of that, and you think of the description in verses 1 through 4 of sinfulness. Well, our sins were like that. If you're in Christ now, your sins were like that. But He has made you to be as white as snow. Or Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As sinful as we are, verses 1 through 4, this God of loving kindness has taken our sin and put them away. Why? It's His nature to redeem. He's a loving God. And He's a God who's always faithful. He goes on and describes his righteousness. Righteousness that he says is like the mountains of God. I believe this is an expression of speech. It's a superlative. How great is the righteousness of God? It is the greatest righteousness. There's no righteousness better than the righteousness of God. God always does the right thing. All the time. Every time. In every situation Always right, always just. That's remarkable by itself, isn't it? I mean, how many times do you want to do the right thing and you do what you think is the right thing only to discover it was the wrong thing? You didn't intend it to be the wrong thing, but you look back and you realize it was. God always does what's right. The imagery of the mountains here could refer to the heights, but David has already given us a greater height, pointing to the heavens and to the skies. This is probably meant to be a picture of immovability, unshakability. How firm is God's righteousness? How steadfast, like the mountains? He moves from there to God's judgments. And they are, he says, as deep as the ocean. God does not make shallow decisions. He does not make judgments that are short-sighted. Judgments that have part of the facts. Judgments in which the witnesses come forward, but they're lying. And he makes the judgment based on the information he has, but it's the wrong information. No, he always has the right information, the correct information, all the information. And so his judgments are always true. I was thinking earlier about how often as a parent 
of little boys. I'm sure my older children did this when they were little children also. But as a parent of little boys, I get kind of, uh, I find myself agreeing to things that I don't even realize I'm agreeing to. Part of that tuning out probably. You know, you're trying to do something and they catch you at the most inopportune time. Can we do this, this, this? And usually there's about 10 of those in a row, you know. And somewhere in the middle of that, you say yes to something you didn't even realize you said yes to. And they come back. They can't remember to clean their room, you know. But they remember that one day you said this. You're like, I said that? Yes, you did. And both, oh, yeah, yeah, you said that. You said we'd do this and this. I'm thinking, I don't, even, I don't remember this conversation at all. Uh, oh, and then sometimes you realize, I did say that. But you realize, you know, here were the conditions to that that you've completely forgotten about. And so anyway, just kind of short-sighted agreement sometimes with kids. And God never makes any of those. He's faithful. He's righteous. His judgments are deep. And David sums this loving kindness up in this section right here in verse 6 at the end there. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. God is a Savior. He preserves us. He's sustaining His creation now, ruling providentially. But He's also moved and worked to save us by redeeming His creation and redeeming for Himself a people. It's His nature to redeem. Sin has ruined us. It's ruined the creation around us. We are bruised and broken by the fall. But God has worked. He has sent His Son to become flesh to bring us back to Himself and to restore us to a position better than we had before. God's a saving God. And so as David contrasts the humanity and the wickedness of it with this God who is full of loving kindness, he's also portraying for us a God who has saved, a God who has worked to save and whose loving kindness is actively engaged in seeking out for himself a people. In verses 7 through 9, David moves to kind of the benefits of these this, this covenant-keeping love, this loving kindness. And he begins again with a statement about this loving kindness. He says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God? How precious is it? And right there in that statement or that question, I think you have a truth that carries the entire psalm. God's loving kindness is precious, especially to his children. It is rich. It is valuable. It is admirable. You can take the loving kindness of God and turn it and look at it from different angles. And every angle that you look at it from, it is admirable. And so we look at Him, we see His work, and we adore Him, we admire Him, we worship Him. It is precious. What about this loving kindness makes it so precious? Well, again, every angle, but David mentions a few things here, so let's look at them. First, it is a sheltering love. Verse 7 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
Here's a picture of a hen hiding her chicks from danger under her wings. She's sheltering her chicks, even if it cost her her life. She'll die covering up these chicks. Is this not what Christ has done? God became man and died the just for the unjust. He bore the curse that was ours, took the punishment that we deserved, and protected us. Are you then under the shelter of His wings? Or are you outside that shelter and still exposed to danger? God's love, His loving kindness is precious, it's valuable, it's admirable. It's a sheltering kind of love, a protecting kind of love. But then, really shockingly, David says here, That it is of value in this way to the children of men or the sons of Adam. Now, either he means that sons of Adam who then become the children of God, or he means that even the sons of men, the children of Adam, benefit from this inexpressible love of God. And I tend to think maybe he means that. While we walk on this earth, even the lost person benefits from the fact that God is a God of love. We enjoy common mercy. We we enjoy, uh, we enjoy life. The lost person breathes air moment by moment as God sustains that person. And you draw that breath Unconsciously, I mean, who sits around and thinks, breathe, you know, unless you're hyperventilating or something, you don't sit around and think, breathe. You just do. And the fact that the air is there for you to take in is the kindness of God. Every person who's alive is benefiting from the fact that God is loving. And it is also an indirect benefit that God protects and sustains His children and those around benefit from His loving kindness to His children. And I, I'm not going to describe that further. If you have questions, I'll, I'll be glad to answer. But for the sake of moving along, let me give you a second benefit, a second reason this is precious. In verse 8, David speaks of this love as a sustaining love. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Here the passage turns especially to those who belong to God, who are the direct recipients of His loving kindness. They're in His house and they're eating at His table and drinking from the drink that He provides. And look how He provides for them. They drink their fill. There are no empty children in God's house unless they refuse to open their mouth to be filled. There is a table set. It is a table of abundance or uh, of fat. He's talking about the fact that it's rich food. They're they're not on wartime rations. The food is not being parceled out. There's a, a banquet set before them. And they're able to eat and drink their fill. As much as you'll have, fill yourself up. Be satisfied By the fullness that God Himself provides. There is a river 
of His delights. The food is not just abundant or, or, or rich food, but it's good food. It's tasty. There's some foods you put in your mouth and it's just, oh, that's good. God's provision for His children is good. It's satisfying. It's delightful. It's sufficient. Verse 9 describes a fountain of life. Where there's a fountain, there's no lack. It's not... You know, it's not a, a cistern that holds a certain amount of water, even if it's not broken. It holds a certain amount of water that when it's gone, it's gone until you can fill it again. But here's a fountain that continues to flow. And so God's house is always a house of abundance. His table is always full. The river of His delights is always flowing. It's not like my house where there's lots, you know, often feast and famine. Mama goes to the grocery store and there's all this food and... If you don't watch the food, the kids, they, they eat, you know, they delight themselves in the abundance. And then there's no food left and there's days until grocery time. And you think, where'd all the food go? Oh, David and Daniel. And so we've threatened to put like a lock on the pantry so that there'll be food tomorrow because they like to eat everything you buy today. God's house is never like that. There's always an abundance. There's this river flowing of new abundance day by day. There's new mercies each morning. And so there's a sufficiency in God's provision. There's light that shines. And in your light, we see light. There's direction. We just saw the, the, the ungodly. They're dwelling in darkness. It's a, it's a picture of darkness, delusion, distraction from what's real. But the believer walks in the light that God Himself is. And they see. If you will bother to look, you can see. Verses 1-4 through four portrayed the ungodly in this, this picture of darkness and depravity and deviousness. But then, verses 5-9, through nine, the loving kindness of God. The contrast here is so sharp that there are those who think that they were parts of two different psalms that were put together at a later date. There are certain people who can't imagine that David would write it this way. And so obviously what happened was, you know, and um, you know, obviously I think David wrote it this way and for a reason. And I think verses 10 through 12 kind of bring it all together and give us the reason for the contrast that he draws. In verses 10 through 12, David prays. He asks God to intervene. And as he moves to his prayer, he does not leave behind loving kindness. Verse 10, Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. David prays that God's loving kindness would continue or that it wouldn't stop or that it would extend to him now in whatever circumstance he finds himself in. And the reason for the prayer, I think, we see in verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Here's whatever he's facing. This is contained in it. God, let your loving kindness continue to me or extend to me in this circumstance so this doesn't happen. 
David needs protection. We don't know the exact circumstance. There were many times when he needed protection. But he asked that God would save him from the foot of pride and the hand of the wicked. And yet, as he prays, he's not in despair. He knows the outcome of the ungodly. Verse 12. There, the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. God will have the last word. God will triumph. All who belong to Him will triumph in Him. But now, today, let not the foot of pride come against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. And so he prays, verse 10. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. God will deal with the ungodly who remain ungodly. But we live here now. And because the ungodly plans wickedness upon his bed and does not despise evil, God, extend your loving kindness to me now. In this situation, whatever this is. Perhaps another way to say it is this. God, let me know your loving kindness in the circumstances I'm now dealing with. Let me live in the awareness of your covenant love. Why? Because God's loving kindness changes everything. Tell me, would it not make a difference? If, you are, if you're gripped by the fear of the ungodly and their wicked plans, will you not respond one way? And respond a completely different way if you are gripped by the loving kindness of God, even though the wickedness still exists. But if you're gripped by the loving kindness of God, the precious loving kindness that shelters and sustains and is sufficient, will that not make a difference? David has described this loving kindness in verses 5 and 6 as being vast. Extends to the heavens, the skies. Deep. He's described it as valuable in verses 7, 8, and 9. It's precious. In verse 12, it's victorious. You will do this. Does that not make a difference? And so he offers this kind of prayer. God, let me know your loving kindness now. Are you familiar with these verses? 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If I ask what God wants, His will, He hears me. If He hears me, I know He answers me. But how often are we not sure 
that what I'm praying for is what God wants to give me. But when we ask for what we know, God, give me your loving kindness. May it extend to me now. Is that not somewhat comparable to Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19? Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. May they be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. When we ask God to extend or to continue His loving kindness to us, we're asking God to do what He intends to do. And so the prayer reflects the promise. This is a wonderful psalm. The wickedness of humanity, of you and of me without Christ. It's terrible. But the loving kindness of God is immense. It's awesome. It's beyond comprehension. And this God does not stand back from us, waiting for us to destroy ourselves. He draws sinners near to Himself through faith in Christ so that His goodness becomes our eternal satisfaction. He spreads a table. Here are the rivers of my delight. Here's abundance. Take your fill. He calls us to a feast. Are you hungry? Close with the doxology from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.